Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at the Athletic Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And we are coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That was a game. What a game. There is joy in Mudville this morning. (laughs) That wasn't just like what a game from the perspective of people who cover the Canucks every day. That was like people around the NHL. Like, wait, hold on. What on earth? What on earth is happening out there? Especially because they all fell asleep thinking it was over (laughs) and then woke up like, what? Huh? What? Pardon me? I mean, once I once I got it into a sentence, right? I, I like got so obsessed with it that I just had to present it to ten separate Canucks to get their reaction to it, right? Because it was like your team tonight won a game in which you blew a third period lead and also trailed four nothing. Your comment. Like I just <laughs> I, I I don't know what else you can say about it. Like I've never worked a game like that. I've never worked a game like that. I've worked Thousands of games. I've definitely worked a thousand games at this point in my career in some capacity, and I've never seen a game like that. It what? And I know you can do like the game searches or whatever, but for those two things, trailed by four, and, and blew, blew a third, third period, period lead, lead, and one, and one. Yeah, that is extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare in the what, annals of NHL history. What are the odds on that same game? <laughs> yes, my exactly. I know. Uh, I, I, truly, a remarkable night at Rogers Arena, and yet, you know. At the end of the day, it's one that just captures the volatility of this team, right? This team is both of these things all at once, right? When you're throwing your controller at your television and, you know, leaving the game early. Do you see those people, the regrettable tweets? Like, I've never left a Canucks game early before tonight. I'm sure. But I did it tonight. And it's like, oh, dude, bad call. Just the wrong one. I mean, it was understandable in the moment, but... That team is this Canucks team, right? And and I wouldn't be shocked. Look, I think Spencer Martin is a serviceable NHL goaltender. I think he's a I think he's a bona fide NHL level goaltender. I think he's going to give this team pretty close to average goaltending performance, even as his games get up there. Um, and I think he's a credible backup guy and emergency starter. Like I think he's going to be totally fine. I actually didn't think he was that bad last night. Like I didn't even think he was that bad last night. The Nick Suzuki second goal is the only one mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'd want back. And guess what? If you watch enough Nick Suzuki, you'll know he beats everybody with that shot. Everybody. It's an inf- it's a wildly quick release. Like, he changes the angle and gets it off the toe of his stick lightning fast. Naslin-like. Like, it's honestly one. It, it looks like a bad goal. It often goes through goalies, but kind of like that OV seeing eye sure. slapper. Yeah. Like, when it's a Suzuki wrist shot specifically from the right side of the ice... Ah, that's a tough shot. That's a tough shot to stop every time out. I I really didn't think Martin played that badly. I thought the defense collapsed in front of him in that in that ten minute stretch. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the one minute in Flor- against Florida mm. where they just got buried. And this team does that sometimes. It's like it's like everyone forgets to play defense. It's 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 wild to watch. And anyway, that is who this Canucks team is. But this Canucks team is also. The one that feels inevitable, particularly whenever Elias Pettersson is on the ice, and can storm back and eliminate deficits and bury teams on any given night under a barrage of goals. 
those things are both true. That's that's who this Canucks team is. Again, their defining characteristic is not that they're good, and it's not that they're woeful. It's that they're maddeningly inconsistent. And and really, I'd sort of add a phrase to it, volatile. Like, volatile. That's what I keep coming back to as I'm thinking about that game. Like, in some ways, that game felt to me like a distillation, right, of what the Canucks have been like under Boudreaux in particular. High highs, low lows, often all at once, mm. right? This team's everything, all at the same time. And so, you know, I, I, it was a shocking result. It was incredible to watch. It was wildly entertaining. I think we're going to see more wildly entertaining games out of this team. I think we're going to see more inexcusably awful performances out of this team over the course of the season. I think we're going to see high highs, low lows, and at the end of 82 games, we're going to see something like 85 to 92 points and a team outside the playoff picture. And, uh, I mean, at least it's going to give us something to talk about. And you made the comparison to the one minute against Florida, right, where they go down 3 nothing just yep. before the end of the first period. They end up losing that game 5-1, and it was there was zero doubt, zero doubt about the outcome of that game for the rest of the way. And, of course, the difference is not just that the Canucks played better in the ensuing, you know, after that uh, four no- four nothing stretch uh, last night. But the difference is Montreal does not have the ability to salt a game away like Florida does, and Montreal has, you know, Jordan Harris and Caden Gooley and Arbor Jekai, a bunch of guys who are a, a, very very early in their NHL careers on the blue line. A, a bunch of guys who, by the way, I know Montreal's like high on their young defensemen. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, like, like one thing, one thing I think I'd be. If I was covering the Montreal Canadiens right now, by the way, for as much as I'd like to be like, and because they have a direction, right, I would be like, is Caden Gooley a top pair defenseman? I don't know. I don't know, because there were some sequences last night that were very much not pretty. Like, you know, uh, goes into the corner, throws a turnover up the far wall, puck comes back down, he gets gets lost in some equipment, Gooley chases the puck to the near wall, um, turned it over up like the wall on that one again, then loses Bo Horvat, and then the Canucks are down one. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah. oh boy. Now, he's got some time. The athletic skills are there, but there's a long learning curve before he's going to be dependable in tough minutes. And, you know, um, Arbor Jacka Arbor Jack is a good story. He takes a lot of penalties. Yeah. He- there's a reason he was available for the Habs, right? I mean, he's a nice story, as you said. He's but a nice find, yeah. too. Um, you know, our, our friend Jason Bukala and the Florida Panthers. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, there's who knows? Like, who knows? I don't even know what they have on defense. What I do know is that that's one of the worst defensive teams in hockey. Oh, yeah. And what, and what I also know is, you know, how positive – like, people always want me to be more positive, right? Despite the fact that I, frankly, haven't been negative enough over the course of the past few years, right? Like, just because I've been more negative than the market doesn't mean that I've been negative enough to capture the fact of this organization, right? This team is now on three and five with their wins coming in overtime against the Coyotes, the Montreal Canadiens, and the San Jose Sharks, and I think you could say that they've been outplayed in four of the five games. I'd actually give them last night as the game in which they were the better team. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. I thought their first ten minutes were fantastic. 
then they lose the plot. Which made it all the more inexplicable (laughs) the final 10 minutes of that period. Yeah, then they lost the plot, and then I thought they played pretty well, but I would say, like, they they played well. They they outplayed the Habs in the final 40 minutes, but they also left way too many opportunities. Like, Colin Delia had to make some saves. He felt like he was under almost constant duress whenever the Habs set up shop in the offensive zone. And against better teams, deeper teams, they're going to make you pay. Like, that's not... Again, we all know what winning hockey looks like in this market. This market's been around enough. The fans are savvy enough. We know what winning hockey looks like in this market. We know that last night was fun, but we also know it's not winning hockey. And not look, sustainable. If you yeah, if you want to hear something positive about last night's game beyond the you know the kind of wow they showed great heart in coming back well, from four nothing, which is fair. No, it is fair. It's true. Yeah, they're they're but it's just both resilient and fragile all at once. But it's also for me, it's that tells you about what happened in that game. I'm not then drawing any conclusions about no. what we're going to see for the rest of the season if, from that. If you want me to come on the radio and say the Canucks came back and that's going to be a big turning point for the guys, right? Look, it might be. I'm not saying it's not going to be. I'm just saying you don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The people in that room don't know, right? If you want someone, if you want to listen to someone who's going to like really hammer their fist down, then you want to be lied to because no one can know that for certain. For me, though, you know, because I've been making this point over the last week or so, concern about the quality of entertainment, the quality of the product they're putting on the ice in front of their home fans. And hey, last night, yeah, it wasn't winning hockey. It's not sustainably winning hockey. Oh, no, but that was a great product. It was a great product. That sure wasn't boring. It was awesome. That hit good. That's the night that if you were out at that game, you'll be taught, you'll be remembering that for years, no matter what happens in this season, because it was that level of quality entertainment. Well, hey, look, it's always fun at a Habs home game. Unfortunately. And especially when, uh, if you're one of the Canucks fans in attendance, when they blow a 4 nothing lead, the Habs, and you get to see them all, go. all sad all about it very, at the end. Very but, demonstrative and You know, sad. we have these texts coming in, and 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and Donkey texts in, uh, all right, Drancer and Dodds, drive home the point that the Canucks still aren't fixed, even though they came back from four goals down. Team is still broken. Don't be fooled, Donkey. And we so always... Do- Donkey's saying that? Yes. Donkey's saying they're yeah. broken. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I wouldn't call them broken, though. But here's the thing. So we I, al- I, I would just say they're not good enough. We always get these texts or similar texts to that after a win, right? And there's this obvious, you know, whether you want to call it team tank or team rebuild or whatever, there's obviously people who are concerned when there's a win like this that it's going to push them farther away from the goal of rebuilding or dismantling or whatever you want to call it, of changing the direction of this team. I don't think that's a concern at all. At all. After oh, a win like last I, night. I absolutely. Well, sorry. I agree with you. I agree with you for the most part. But until I see it start to happen, I'm never going to believe that this organization is going to take the long way home. But it's not because they come they came back and won. Yeah, this organization night. will not heed Super Tramp's advice. Because <laughs> they are always looking for the shortcut. Because Look, uh, I, I no, can't get no. into I can't get in Jim Rutherford's mind, but I can pretty much guarantee you there's no way Jim no. Rutherford is looking at that last night and saying, "Hey, maybe I was wrong about this team." Oh, I, they I, let up six goals to the Habs. I would bet it's far more likely that Rutherford and company view that as an emo- like rather emotionally as like you know proof of how far the Canucks have. Like, why should we be in the company of Montreal? Why do yep. we need overtime and third period comebacks? To win in overtime against the San Jose Sharks, the Arizona Coyotes, and the Montreal Canadiens. Like, is that the company of this team? And the answer is no. This team is better than those teams. But this team is also outclassed by the Washingtons and Floridas of the world. Like, this last five games, 
tells you an awful lot about this team if you're just willing to read it. Like, blown out by the good teams, the structural teams, the experienced teams, flattened the Canucks. 10-2 aggregate scoreline. The worst of the teams in the league, Canucks need overtime to beat them. But this comes on the heels of the Canucks soundly beating the Colorado Avalanche and the Vegas Golden Knights on the road. So, you know, it's, it's again... This team has high highs, low lows, is exceeding, exceedingly volatile. And you know what? You know what? You want to know what's going to change my tone? The only thing that this team could do that would change my tone materially? Go out there and control 53% of scoring chances at 5-on-5 five five every game for 20 games. Do that. Do that. You want to know what? You want to know what will make me be like, hey, look, that that's a team, right? Right now, there's one line that the Canucks have that does it. It's the Pedersen line. Can you tell when you watch the Canucks play which oh line is goodness. the best? Can you tell? Like, do you know? Now, what I want to see is a team where the environment is always like that. And before you say that's not possible, it is. There's like 10 teams in the league that do it. Now, do they do it as dynamically? Are all four lines that good? No. But they're structurally sound enough that like like when Jack Hughes is on the ice with Pratt for the New Jersey Devils, the numbers... well. The, outrageous. The highs are, are higher for the those highs teams are higher, because they but, have the underlying. But the lows are higher. Line. Yeah. The lows are higher. The entire environment of, of what the team, like, Cam Sharon's doing all that data tracking. And, like, across the board, you know, his, like, his like players who are best at exits thing. It's, like, the Leafs defenseman who's best at exiting the zone. It's, like, Sandine and Morgan Riley and then Quinn Hughes and then the rest of the Leafs defensemen and then all the Canucks defensemen. Right. And then it's like zone exits. And it's like Riley Stillman, for some reason, ranks highly along with Quinn Hughes. And then, you know, all of the least defensemen and then all of the other Canucks defensemen. Right. Like it's like stratified. Right. Like you can literally see in his data. This is what a winning team plays like. This is what the Canucks play like. And by the way, you don't need to track it with Cam Sharon quality obsessiveness to know this. Fans know this. Oh, yeah. You know, when the Pedersen line is on the ice, you see the difference. Between Miller, Horvat, and Hoaglander, with what it looked like when Horvat and Miller were playing on separate lines as centermen. Like, you can feel, you know, when those players you know are going to control play step on the ice, and you're like, okay, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. This is going to spend some time in the offensive end. Maybe they get a goal here. This is, this is important shit for them. They need to get a goal here. These are the players that might get it. Like, you know, you've watched enough hockey. All of you listening, you know what it looks like. You know. You don't have to pretend because the emotional sort of power of a win gives you this fleeting little hit of serotonin. Like, enjoy that hit, but you also know what winning hockey looks like. You know it's not this. Let's just keep that in – we have to keep that in mind and be focused on it. And, you know, I do think that the organization recognizes this. I think they recognized it last year, though. And then they didn't make sufficient changes. So until I see – until I see the moves, like I need to see the action. I can't just hear the words. I can't just understand, you know, the idea of structure and what they want. I need to see that implemented in reality. I need to see action back it up before I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not concerned that this organization is going to do something like extend Luke Shen. Well, and that's why, that's why there is, oh man, I just looked at the, uh, the scoreline in Portugal, Switzerland, by the way, for the first time, <laughs> in oh, yeah. first not, time in a while. Pretty. Anyways, moving on. Um, that's why I think there is such a hunger to see the moves start right away. Even if there's 
an understandable and logical point that holding some players might increase their value, right? And I think part of that is because there's the sense that if you do it in kind of dribs and drabs and you slow roll it and you say, well, maybe we'll make a trade right now, but, you know, this guy's this guy will have more value in the summer. This guy will have more value at the deadline next year. I think the concern for a lot of fans is if that's the approach, you can kind of pull out of it early, right? You can you can say, ah, you know what? Actually, we'd rather keep this guy. We'd rather keep this guy now that we see how things have adjusted. And I think because it has felt like we're on the cusp of big changes many times before, and they've never actually happened, there is this hunger, a very understandable hunger, I might add, for the big changes to happen all at once rather than hunger. continue. You yes. might call it thirst. <laughs> yes, rather than to be kind of dangled before people right and say oh don't worry it's coming and then again and again and again it never actually gets there even though it might be the logical thing right you can make you can go through the roster and we've done this you can go through the roster and look at a lot of guys and say well actually as much as much as good as it would feel for a lot of fans for the Canucks to trade Tyler Myers tomorrow there's a very plausible hockey case a correct hockey case I would argue to hold him at least until you pay him his signing bonus and go into the summer and he's an expiring contract that makes a lot of sense I just think people worry, well, if you kick it down the road again and again, will it ever actually happen? Will that day where they change directions ever actually get here? Uh, I want to get into the, uh, you mentioned extending Luke Shen there. I do want to talk about that. But first, the last thing I'll say about that game last night, uh, Canucks could just use more games like that, win, win or lose. And I know it drives coaches nuts. I'm sure it drives Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine in the front office nuts. But hey, entertain the fans. Get your players some points. Get your players some production. Maybe float their value a little bit. And simultaneously leave absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind about how much work is done. Is still to be done to correct this team. Right? Like that that's if you can do all those three things in a night, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good game for the Canucks. It was a lot of fun. Now, I just want to zoom out one zoom out and note one thing, right? That's the first game. Is that the first game since Demko got injured? No, he got injured in fl- against Florida. That was on Thursday. Yeah, so, so then they played Arizona. So, look, this team is bad defensively. Like, defense optional is how it feels sometimes. And once teams get, get momentum and start to find those seams in that space, there's too many goals, like I saw Satshaw point out quite quite astutely, as, as he always does, that the Sean Monaghan goal in particular is mm. like the easy goal that teams get far too often right in the dirty areas against this team. Like, I thought Martin was hung out to dry on all but the Suzuki goal. And even that I didn't consider a soft goal. I don't think Martin played poorly. Well, how many goals to just the Monaghan one where his feet are in the blue paint, basically. He's on, he's on top of the goalie all alone, or, banging the puck in. Or Montreal PP1 looking like McDavid and Dreisaitl passing yep. the puck around, and then there's that backdoor tap, and like, what, what's Martin going to do? What's Martin going to do? What what could he ever possibly do? Without Thatcher Demko, right? And granted, we haven't had the team play in front of Demko throwing his usual force field up. But without Thatcher Demko, the Canucks are very unlikely to get over the next six weeks that two, two, three stretch of goaltending, two, three week stretch of goaltending where the guy's just nigh unbeatable and it covers up a lot of this team's flaws. We are going to see the cost of Vancouver's poorest defensive play more over the course of the next six weeks than we have previously, right? Certainly over the, over the, over the Boudreaux tenure, right? Demko has disguised a lot of this team's flaws. 
that's about to change, right? Like, I, again, am not saying this is criticism of Martin. Martin, I think, can give the team average goaltending, but Demko, even when his numbers look average, even like even when they look below average, is so significantly outplaying his environment that it helps paper over just how poor this club is at, at holding their own defensively. That is going to show... And it's one thing, like, it's just one thing to be mindful of. Cause I thought that was like the first echo of something that we're probably going to be like, I felt like that was, um, you know what that was? That was the trailer. Nah. That was like the, the, the Christopher Nolan, like, and then you see like the guy and it's like, here's the high concept that we're doing this year. You know what I mean? Like people have come back from the future to make things run in reverse. Um, that's the Spencer Martin four goals against sequence. Right, that was the trailer, and I suspect we're not going to like the movie. Like, you know, must miss. That's what the movie. That's my reaction to the trailer. Um, this is what this could look like without Demko. It's not going to be a lot of fun, and I, I, I just worry that this team is going to get be allowing an awful lot of goals against here over the course of the next six weeks. I would actually be surprised if that wasn't how this looks. Well, and that could be the case even with Spencer Martin providing average goaltending, right? Because the thing with average even goaltending, above average goaltending, average goaltending behind this defense, there's going to be games still where Spencer Martin probably looks really good and you know does a good job of not at Thatcher Demko level, but does a really good job of preventing goals and keeping the team in the game. But there's going to be goals where because he's not a star goalie, that the opposite happens and it, and it gets pretty ugly. And just you're going to have those fluctuations, especially behind a team like the Canucks that, as we know, uh, can give up a ton of really, really dangerous grade-A opportunities to teams. Uh, this text comes in from Dalvir V. says, Last night was wacky and wild, but I can't be happy with with this team until we see meaningful and decisive moves for the purpose of a proper rebuild. Everything else is irrelevant and just deepens the abyss. That's from Dalvir uh, V. And uh, this one, Brandon Vancouver, I'm late to join the show. Have we told Drancer that the Canucks are just three points out of being in a wildcard spot? No, I had not it's, brought it Sorry, up. it's two points. It's two points. Yes, it is two points. But, but, sort by, finish it for me. Sort, sort by points percentage. Thank you. Um, and if you do, what do you find? Oh, well, I don't even know. But well, I'll not, tell you, not 23rd. There. Yeah. 23rd, which means, hey. Look, good news. Canucks have elevated themselves above the Buffaloes and the Philadelphias of the world. There you go. Over the course of this week. But, but, they still trail the Montreal Canadiens. Somebody texted in a really good point, and I didn't bring it up yesterday because I didn't want to um, add evidence to an argument you're making. But somebody texted in that they do, the NHL does waiver priority by. Point percentage. percentage. I know, which I is know. which is better than anything you had had, had argued. Well, on that I know, point but before. I didn't need to. I didn't need to. Point percentage is so obviously the only way to do it. I mean, oh, the, two points out of a playoff spot behind the Colorado Avalanche. We'll probably catch them, right? Yeah. We'll oh no, I definitely think the Canucks will outpoint the Colorado Avalanche, who have a game in hand. Three. By, uh, the Colorado Avalanche actually have three games. Three in hand. games in yeah. hand. Okay, so the Avs have three games in hand. Yes. Okay, and the, so the Canucks need to outpoint them by two points, or so three points, plus catch up on those games in hand to, to catch the Avs. And the Nashville Predators are still between them and the Avs, and the Nashville Predators also have... Three games in hand. Three games in hand. Why are we talking about... Two points out. Two points. It, you know what? You know what? It offends me. It offends me. I find it offensive. I it, can tell. It, it is an affront 
It is an affront to facts, and here's the worst part. It's a deliberate affront to facts that the NHL encourages, in terms of the way that it presents the, st- the standings publicly, to hoodwink gullible consumers into thinking that teams, bad teams, are closer than they are. Like, that's exactly the sort of, like, mirage that I'm determined to puncture. That's exactly, like, that's why I'm here. That's, that's, that gets me up in the morning. I, I, I get up in the morning, I, like, stretch, you know, I go look at myself in the mirror and I go, ah, time to, time to go be dogmatic. Time to be dogmatic about point percentage. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. My my Tuesday, policy. Tuesday. Uh, my policy was going to be to only bring it up if they got within a point, but we had the texter come in, so I, I wanted to poke the bear a little bit, and it worked. Uh, it worked very very well. Coming up next on the show, Harmon Dial, who also works for the Athletic, will join us. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, live from the Kintec Studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Now joining us on Canucks Talk, also covering the Canucks for The Athletic, he is uh, Harmon Dial. Harmon, thanks as always for making time for us. How are you? I'm uh, doing really well. How are you guys? We're doing great. We're having fun talking about whatever it was that transpired at Rogers Arena last night. It was a blast to watch. Not not necessarily pretty hockey, but certainly entertaining. D- does that kind of game, I mean, does it almost defy analysis to a certain extent? Does it really tell us anything about the Canucks in your view? That's a good question. I think right off the bat, I mean, the obvious is that, I mean, it does, it, it it isn't the sort of game that I think you want to get wrapped wrapped too deep into individual sort of trends, but it's almost the sort of thing where so much happened, both positive and negative, which a lot of which kind of sums up the Canucks where um, you obviously had a scenario where they went down early and it wasn't just that they were down one or two goals, but it was the trend that we've seen early in the season where when they go down by, you know, one or two goals that things quickly unravel um, we saw obviously later on the uh, blown lead, which we've seen a lot of, but you also saw the electric offensive attack. You saw the elite power play. You saw both shades of JT Miller in terms of um, one of the turnovers that eventually led to a goal against, but also him making the clutch play on the power play, um, sending up Andre Kuzmenko to tie the game up and send, send them to OT. Um, it was just everything kind of happened in that. And it's the sort of game that, almost does kind of encapsulate how the Canucks are like, they ride that those emotional highs and lows. Um, they are that emotional roller coaster. Like this is what that game is, what the Canucks usually are throughout an entire season. I mean, even when you look at um, the Canucks um, last season, they were just outside the playoff bar, but they took the most volatile path possible to that sort of average uh, finishing point where they had the first 25 games where they were at an absolute um, worst point and everyone had kind of counted them out. And then they obviously had the the initial second half bump under Boudreaux where they looked totally unstoppable um, and everyone was sort of buying in, buying in. And it, I think it, I think it did does kind of that game sum up the volatility of this team and how you never really know what to expect from them. Everyone. 
<laughs> was everyone well, okay. buying in, Harmon? <laughs> I'm talking more so about the fan base. That was the one point where, like, I mean, tell me this, though. Like, what what, what portion of the fan base wasn't bought into the vibes that Boudreaux was bringing? No, of course. Like, we may have been skeptical on the outside as media members, um, but the, the market was bought into what? To, to Boudreaux and the vibes there. The, the hardcores were, for sure. With, I mean, do you think there's any way that this team could address their volatility and raise their floor with the personnel that they currently have? I don't think so, because when we talk about the team's defensive issues, it isn't just, and, and I've been trying to really emphasize this, it isn't just the back end, right? Like, no, it's a lot of time. Uh, talking about how the blue line has holes and flaws and, yeah, they can't move the puck and they're permissive defending the rush. They don't have enough mobility. But the problem is the forwards are also a big part of that when it comes to their puck management, when it comes to how diligent they are with their defensive details. Uh, In the defensive zone, what you'll notice is a lot of the defensive breakdowns that happen in terms of goals against where rebounds aren't being picked up, picked up or maybe there's a backdoor play that uh backdoor player that doesn't um that doesn't get checked a lot of times you'll have scenarios where in today's nhl like teams move around so so much in the offensive zone as a five-man unit is it isn't just like their defensemen stand at the point and fire point shots and what that requires from a defensive perspective is that if you're the Canucks, all of a sudden, it isn't just the defenseman's responsibility to defend. You have a lot more active switches where a defenseman might be in a battle in the corner, and all of a sudden, they're, like the attacking team's defenseman is, is sort of pinching down on the weak side, and whether it's the center or whether it's the winger, now all of a sudden you're responsible for picking up that player and ensuring that that passing lane isn't available. And that those are the sort of like high-leverage um, defensive situations that 10 or 15 years ago, your wingers or your centermen would not have faced on um, that much uh, as regularly. And so a lot of the goals against that I've noticed, especially the plays where the, where there's long cycle shifts um, below the goal line, a lot of times it isn't just the defenseman, but it's like the, the, the F3, the, the deepest forward who um, isn't able to pick up a guy. And that's where I think there's an overall, um, especially on switches, is where I've noticed this. I don't know if it's a point of communication. I don't know if it's um, necessarily um, not in the the club not having enough personnel that uh, that have uh, high end defensive instincts. But when there's a lot of activity in the offensive zone, it feels like players don't know how, like who they should be covering, or they don't know the right spots to be in. And I think that's an issue that isn't just solved, uh, that isn't easily solvable by um, by simply tweaking your system or something like that. Because you've seen it, even when the Canucks sometimes have numbers back in the slot or down low, it, it, you'll have goals against where it's like three, four guys are sort of in the vicinity, but there's there, no one's picking up the eventual goal score. So I think a lot of that comes down to personnel, and it's uh, tough to um, immediately solve because it is the goals against that causes the volatility for this team and especially with Demko now out, um, at least for the foreseeable future, you're looking at a scenario where you probably can't rely on goaltending to bail you out either. Harmon, there's obviously been a lot of talk about Brock Besser and his future here in Vancouver since everything that transpired over the weekend and the reporting 
uh, from various insiders, you know, here and and around the NHL on the fact that his agent has permission to go seek out a trade. I've also noticed a lot of debate from our listeners, from fans in general, about whether it makes sense to trade Besser when his value is very, very low at the moment, or if they should hold and try to rebuild some of that trade value before potentially exploring a move. Which of those paths is more it would be more attractive for you? Are you? Trying to do a deal right now to kind of free up the cap space or hoping to rebuild the value down the road? Well, if there's a scenario where you can kind of shed the cap space and not take any inefficient money back, um, you know, I think that's something that management probably would would explore and, and, and kind of uh, feasibly do right now. The issue is with, with Besser, obviously, having the start that he's had, his value has kind of um, uh, has has been further reduced, and I think the Canucks are in a position where if they can really um, ride him shotgun with Elias Pettersson, which when you look at Besser's career and, and even with Pettersson historically, when those two guys have played together, they've produced more together than they have apart. I think that's a, that's the sort of spot where if you um, have Besser on Pettersson's line, especially with Mikheyev on the other wing, where Mikheyev has that high-end speed so you don't have to worry so much about is that line too slow with Besser on it um I I think that's a combination that could really work and all of a sudden you could could have a scenario where Besser is finding the back of the net a lot more often um you could have a scenario where his two-way form starts to rebound and he's able to um help in a complementary role again so um I think there's there's a scenario absolutely where um, if if I'm the Canucks right now and any team that's interested in Besser is asking me to um, take on take take an inefficient salary back um, or um, is asking me to give up a sweetener, like I'm just not going to do that. I'd rather bet on Besser still refining his form. However, if there's an opportunity to potentially just shed the cap space and you don't have to take any money back, that's the sort of scenario where I'm like, okay, like I might be more willing to consider that right now. Harmon, we're 26 games into the season now. Yep. Do you think, just just flat out, do you think this team has the juice to push for the playoffs? I don't. They're still in it. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's still possible. Nobody's counting them out yet. But the way that this team... I, defense is just the biggest issue for me we're the way i'd the way i'd put it is this we've seen the absolute best case scenario in terms of what this team can do offensively um at five on five um on the power play they're scoring goals in such bunches that there isn't more there isn't more to give their offensively like they've sort of hit their cap as a as, as a team that scores in bunches and yet they're still in the scenario where um, they're below 500. And so to me, then when I look at, there isn't a lot of potential to improve in that offensive aspect. You look at the defensive side of it, like that's, that's feasibly the area that you'd need to improve on is, is cutting down the goals against to start winning games more regularly to actually make the playoffs. That's, that's tough for me with, you know, the, the uncertainty around Demko now where um, he isn't just out, for you know let's say around six weeks but when he does come back now there's more question marks about could he 
is he going to immediately find his form or is it going to take him even more time than initially anticipated to find his, uh, find his form? And when you consider the type of run that the Canucks had under Boudreau in the second half, which at this point you probably need something along those, li- along those lines to uh, make the playoffs, it hinged in Patrick Alvin's own words on Demko being the best goalie in the league from December onward. So with that uncertainty in goal and the the lack of confidence I have on this team's defensive ability as a five-man unit in terms of how much they uh, surrender and, and how much they allow, I don't have a lot of confidence that they can make the playoffs. Do I think that they can pick up some wins and um, and, and and maybe we're in January and February and t- when we're talking about, oh, they're only three points out. Could the playoff push be back on? Like, yeah, we may end up having those conversations. Absolutely, I could see that scenario. But in the big picture, do I think they actually have the juice to get into the playoffs? Right now, the answer for me is no. Harmon, currently the books, Vegas, has them plus 265, so about 2.5 to 1 odds of making the playoffs. You liking that value or you fading that value? See, I'm not a bet, like I'm not a betting guy. So the, like, the the implied probability is like 33 percent for playoffs. I I'd fade that yeah. personally. Yeah, so would Dom. Um, okay, there's been some talk, some like arguments resurfacing. This is an annual Vancouver tradition. Hypothetically, we're just talking conceptually because I know you love the man. I know you respect him as a player and, and as a person. But there's been some arguments uh, surfacing. Like, is Luke Shen and what he provides in terms of veteran stability, leadership, character, the sort of piece that this club can afford to afford to trade? Or is whatever asset you get back from him, let's just say nebulous mid-round pick, mid-round pick X, is that more important for this club to do? I think they have to monetize him at the deadline simply because two reasons. For starters, you look at this roster right now, and uh, considering the deficit of you know how how scarce the prospect pipeline is, how often the Canucks have been operating in draft pick deficit, and then you contrast that with how few positive value assets that, that the the Canucks have that they could realistically move. I mean, after Horvat, how many players do you have on this team that could actually give you something decent back in terms of futures? Uh, Besser and Garland at this point clearly have very minimal trade value, if any. Um, and the other players, you know, that you'd be talking about, um, the organization may or may not have an appetite to move. So for me with Shen, the other thing too is I 100% understand the argument that he means a lot in the locker room and he brings this physical edge that, that the Canucks don't have uh, enough of and that if they lose that, they'll become even more soft. The problem is Shen at this stage in his career, he's 33 the Canucks aren't going to be good anytime soon. In terms of, if we're talking about getting this team back to being an elite contender and we're talking about committing to some type of rebuild, it's going to take years of pain, unfortunately, to get back on the right track. Shen isn't young enough to be part of that whole whole lengthy process. That would be the only scenario where like let's say if Shen was 26 or 27, like sure, then I could buy it where it's like he could, he's young enough to be part of the bottom years and then also 
maybe he'll be 32, 33 by the time this team is starting to get back on the right track. And maybe he's in a position to mentor sort of um, mentor the next wave that's starting to, starting to rise. I, I think this, we haven't hit rock bottom yet. If this team is going to rebuild in terms of how long it's going to take um, to get this back on track. And Shen at 33, you've just, um, unfortunately, I think you've got to pull the trigger, get whatever uh, assets you can, you can get back and, um, and, and take it from that standpoint, even though I absolutely love him as a player and, and, and I think he brings um, a ton of intangibles. In conversation with Harmon Dial of The Athletic here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650, one of the other big pending UFAs that is a very, very complicated decision or looks like it's going to be for the Canucks is Andre Kuzmenko. And I know you've got a piece up at The Athletic right now, Harmon, uh, talking about Besser, Kuzmenko, also Ilya Mikheyev. But on Andre Kuzmenko specifically, you know, one of the things you highlighted is that in last night's game, he's playing with Sheldon Dries and Connor Garland. He's away from Elias Pettersson. How important is, however long this sample ends up being, of Kuzmenko without Elias Pettersson going to be for us and, and for the team and for the league, really, to evaluate Andre Kuzmenko as a player? I think it's huge. I, I'm definitely going to be paying very close attention because um, Elias Pettersson, I think we've seen, especially with the way that he's playing this season, he has he has an ability to bring the best out of everyone. And um, I think given Kuzmenko's very limited track record and the fact that you're going to have to be making a decision um, on how to value him with less than a full full uh, season's worth of a sample, you have to be as certain as possible about what exactly Kuzmenko is on his own, his individual isolated value. And that can sometimes be tough um, when you have a player who's playing next to an elite talent and Pedersen who's operating at um, – at a hundred point pace. I mean, you think about it this way, it's really difficult to sort of pinpoint uh, a contract numbers or trade value or whatever. When you have players who've spent half a decade in the league, have hundreds of games of NHL experience uh, on the resume and with Kuzmenko, we're going to be talking about what, like half a season, two thirds of the season. Uh, by the time you have to make a long term decision, on um, on what exactly he is, you need to be certain on, on in terms of what what he can do and what he can produce away from Pedersen because it's always risky when you have uh, like for me, there's no doubt Kuzmenko is the real deal in terms of being a middle six contributor. The question really is just how high is the ceiling there, right? Because he's been at a point per game clip, but is that sustainable in the long run moving forward, especially when? you don't want to have a scenario where you're committing a ton of um, uh, dollars or term to a player whose production is perhaps tethered to one player. So I think it's absolutely essential to see, can he drive play on his own? Um, can he provide a spark? Is he the sort of player who is versatile and can contribute in uh, many different roles and, uh, and responsibilities um, because that would greatly enhance his value. And I think it would, it would destroy the narrative, any narrative around the league about, Kuzmenko is just a product of Patterson. Harmon, as you think about what's next for this team, right? We we know that December still shakes out relatively nicely in terms of a favorable schedule, right? Not a ton of travel. Uh, some cupcake opponents, including the Sharks, on Wednesday. What concern do you have about how Demko's absence will play out 
over the course of the next six weeks? And was the first period last night a preview of what this could look like? It, it absolutely is uh, is a concern. The the when it comes to you know a player anytime, whether it's a skater or goalie, I feel like there's a tendency where, um, let's say, a bottom pair defense their injuries and a bottom pair defenseman. Um, has to all of a sudden step up into a top four role, right? Like whether it was earlier this season with Kyle Burrows or um, back in the day, whether it would be an Oscar Fantenberg type. Uh, I think there's a tendency where players can step into a role that's, you know, greater than their talent level, um, you know, where they're, they're playing ahead of their ability level in the lineup and they can look competent for short stretches. But when you depend on them for every game, like, 10, 20 games, like, and it's a night-to-night expectation, eventually things start to crumble. And I think we're seeing that a little bit with uh, Spencer Martin. It's obviously kind of unfair to expect him to carry the load, especially because of the Canucks' defensive environment, right? If the, if the Canucks defended like the Carolina Hurricanes, for example, um, you could have a scenario where um, all of a sudden the team could maybe think about, all right, we've just got to be extra extra tight about ensuring we don't allow a lot of the rush, ensure that we take away the backdoor passes and that we aren't um, allowing a lot of crossing pa- uh, passes. And it would make it a lot uh, a lot easier for a new goalie, whether it's uh, a Martin or, or even a Delia, to, to play competent uh, hockey and at least um, sort of stem the bleeding and, and at least give you average or, or capable goaltending. The, the concern that I have with Canucks um, when you go back through what they've shown this far is that it's a really, really challenging environment for goaltenders. And you're putting Martin and Delia in a really, really uncomfortable uh, spot. It's, you're, they're basically being thrown into the, into the deep end of the pool um, without a life vest. And you're asking a ton out of, a ton out of them. And I, I, I absolutely do have concerns about the goaltending to this point this season on the whole hasn't been very good for the Canucks. And I just don't see how, I mean, look, goaltending's random. Maybe Martin will summon something. He's certainly shown flashes here or there, but I don't have a lot of confidence that the goaltending is going to improve. And if so, they're, they're kind of going to be, they're going to be climbing uphill and they're going to need to score four or five goals a game to consistently win hockey games. Just before I let you go, Harmony, I mentioned your latest piece touches on Besser, on Kuzmenko, and also Ilya Mikheyev, uh, the big free agent forward signing for the team this summer, has has produced very well so far uh, for the Canucks. What's made Mikheyev a good fit this far thus far with the team? Well, number one, the biggest concern that I had was whether his like we knew Pedersen, if he's playing at the peak of his potential, would set up a ton of chances. The biggest concern was just could Mikheyev bury enough of them in the slot. And I think that's where he has to this point. So obviously already put up uh, eight, eight goals and you're seeing that he um, is finding the right sort of timing with, with how he tacks the middle of the ice as well. Um, the play where Pedersen was below the goal line, for example, and he was looking for a passing scene. I liked Mikheyev's timing for when he attacked the middle where he was kind of lurking to the side and he made sure that like, if he had gone in too early to drive to the blue paint, um, there were two Canadians defenders right there. They're, they would have immediately identified him as a threat and tied him up. But he could sense the right moment for when that passing lane was available and then timed it perfectly so that he'd, he could take an uncontested shot. And then when he, when he was essentially at the doorstep, um, he just made sure he didn't screw up the chance. And that was huge 
um, right off the bat. So his finishing has, um, hasn't been the concern that I maybe thought it might have been um, on that line with Pedersen. And then secondly, we know what he brings in terms of his speed and his puck retrieval. I, I really like how Pedersen has learned to use McKay's speed um, as, as a weapon to enter the zone in creative ways. Uh, I showed a couple examples from last, last night's game, but even going back to from the first, first day of training camp, Pedersen has sent a lot of passes into space. He sent bank passes off the end boards and just been able to find Mikheyev directly, where he just puts the puck into space and Mikheyev skates onto it. It's kind of like um, in soccer when um, a midfielder, midfielder just sends a through ball and expects the speedy striker to race onto it and beat the defender to the ball and just he's off to the races and now he's now we've got an easy offensive zone possession. Like that's how it feels like watching Pedersen and Mikheyev some, uh, sometimes and um, I really, really like how that chemistry has uh, kind of unfolded as well. Harmon, always appreciate the time, man. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, guys. He is Harmon Dial covering the Canucks for The Athletic and his latest on Ilya Mikheyev, Brock Besser, Andre Kuzmenko is up right now. We'll take a quick break. We got into it a little bit there with Harmon about the Luke Shen question. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, on the other side, and get your text in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll hear from Bruce Boudreaux after the Canucks had a uh, very optional practice today at Rogers Arena. We'll play that audio back. More coming up. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strantz, live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, and Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. I'm also very, very excited to tell you about Food Bank Friday. Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. The virtual fundraiser is December 16th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It raises important funds for accessible, healthy, and sustainable food for individuals and families. You can check out the events tab at sportsnet.ca slash 650 to donate. We're also very, very excited to have two, two anonymous donors back this year who will match donations dollar for dollar up to the first $45,000. That means your impact, when you factor in the purchasing power of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, will be $4 for every dollar you donate. If you want to add your own match or challenge, you can email events at foodbank.bc.ca. And of course, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank always urgently urgently needs cash. As I mentioned, they have a buying power of 2 to 1, so your donation goes twice as Far Again, you can go to sportsnet.ca slash 650, check out the events events tab to donate. It's Food Bank Friday coming up on December 16th, but you can donate right now as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and we, you you brought it up with uh, with Harmon there, the question about Luke Shen, Drancer, and I want to get into it, and you know, there's a lot of very complicated, or at least complex maybe if the ultimate sorry, decision are you talking about feelings right not, no 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 no. sorry i'm gonna not say, considerations hold on, hold, on, hold on hold on let me finish let me finish as we get into the trade deadline season 
there's the Bo Horvat situation, right? Yeah, that's do you move him now? Where where are you do you yes. move him down? Do you wait to the deadline? What, how do you maximize your leverage there? There's the Andre Kuzmenko situation, which we've talked about. That's the most complicated extremely one. complex, yeah. extremely complicated, multifaceted in the extreme. That's my favorite one because it's there's so much different stuff to pour over. Luke Shen, from a hockey perspective, is not complicated. No brand. It is not complicated. And I actually made, I think it was on Friday's show, just as we were going off the air, I said something along the lines of the hockey case for trading Luke Shen is very straightforward. And as we were going off the air, somebody texted and said, wait, the hockey case, what are you talking about? He's one of our most reliable defensemen. That can be true. He is. That's absolutely true. He's and yet, also a great person. It does not change the fact that the logic of moving him at the deadline is basically ironclad. The logic of keeping him requires the following thing to be true. Okay? Third in the Pacific. You have to be in third place in the Pacific, not two points out of third place. You have to be in third place in the Pacific by point percentage. Right? With a meaningful shot at playing playoff games over the course of the the last month or two of his deal. Period. Period. Luke Shen has enormous value at 850k for any hockey team that's living in the here and now whose priorities are short term. Yep. Luke Shen's enormously valuable. If you are missing the playoffs, Luke Shen's value to your organization is in the form of the draft pick that he will return. Period. Period. This is a this is very straightforward. The Canucks are not in a position. I'm going to be honest with you here. The Canucks are not in a position where you can really be too concerned about the perfect pieces fitting into their roster and how they fit into their roster. They have to be in accumulation mode, right? The goal for this club for the next several years needs to be about needs to be to accumulate as much value, graft as much value onto the organization as humanly possible in as short a time as possible. You are really working against the clock here. You probably have two, three years left in Pedersen and Hughes' statistical primes, after which they can still be part of the next great Canucks team, but they're probably not the best players on the next great Canucks team, right? This is urgent. This is an emergency. This is a red flashing light, okay? Luke Shen is what, 33? 33. So in two, three years when you're good, is he going to be playing minutes for this team? Or is he more likely to be in player development? Right? Like, I'm cool with keeping Luke Shen around for a rebuilding project in a player development role once he hangs up his skates. Right? Like, does he want to coach? He can coach. <laughs> like, develop him as a human being. He's of such high character that I think you maintain a really good relationship. I wouldn't trade him to a place he doesn't want to go. I'd consult him. I'd make sure, you know, like I'd maintain the relationship so that you can offer him another deal yeah. in the offseason and so that you can potentially have a relationship with him down the line. I believe in Luke Shen as a human being and as a hockey mind and a hockey person. Like Luke Shen's the type of person I do want around. But by the time this team's ready to compete, Luke Shen's probably done. Luke Shen's probably going to be done his playing career. I know that's hard to imagine because Luke Shen arrived in the NHL as like a hard scrabble third pair defenseman and is still that 22 years later. It's kind of amazing. It's kind of not 22 years later. What? 15 years later. Pretty much 22. 22. 
Not, not a big difference. Between he came into the league when he was 11. <laughs> it's actually an incredible story. All right. <laughs> I mean, he might as well have. Luke Shen was an NHL-ready third pair. Did you see that photo of him as a child? Oh, I can imagine. Like, he's just he was a unit at yeah. 11. He was a ready-made third-pair defenseman in the NHL. Anyway, you cannot get precious about holding tight to players when you're, when you're in this state. And people say things like, one thing, one thing when this debate gets raised is like, Luke Shen's cultural value to this team is more valuable than the chances that a third-pair defenseman hits. No, third-round pick hits. Third-round third right, third pick hits. But I'm watching this team play, and their second-best defenseman was just acquired for a fifth-round pick like less than a month ago. Right? Third-round picks aren't just things that you use to draft players. They're also currency that you can use to acquire good players. And the more currency you have, the better positioned you are to win the bidding for the next John Marino. What did John Marino go for? Oh, right. A third-round pick and another prospect. Right? Like, get picks. Get picks. Hard cash. You want to turn things around quickly? Hard cash and cap space. I don't know. I've been saying this for a year. I'm going to keep saying it. That's the whole ball game. That's the whole ball game. The Canucks went out in free agency when free agency opened in 2021, and they signed Travis Hamannick and Tucker Pullman to expensive deals, mm-hmm. which have not worked out, and Luke Shen and Kyle Burroughs to inexpensive deals, which very much have, right? Very much have. That's the point. Like, there is going to be another character human being capable of doing Luke Shen-like things. Not as well as Luke Shen, maybe, but 90% of it, available with zero acquisition cost. But because of the restrictions on what teams can acquire in season, at the deadline, Luke Shen's going to have value, unlike almost any other piece the Canucks have. Like, he's going to be, like, one of the top 10 most valuable... No, sorry, one of the top five most valuable trade chips this team has, particularly given his championship experience, particularly given his... High character, particularly given the fact that he's still playing top four minutes for this team. Like, this is the time. They've buttered their bread here, right? Like, they've upped Luke Shen's value enormously, playing him with Quinn Hughes. Now you get to reap the proceeds. Like, one thing I'd suggest, one thing I'd think about in the context of adding value to the organization is, like, could you trade Shen proactively, relatively quickly? Mm Mm-hmm. And then elevate Kyle Burroughs into that role. Have have him play with Quinn Hughes. I, I know that pair's not as appealing because it's not as large. But I bet it would work. I bet it would work because she, uh, Hughes is so good. And honestly, Kyle Burroughs is better, I think, than this organization thinks. And then do it again. <laughs> could, you, could you essentially affix two right-handed defensive defensemen to Quinn Hughes's side? Have them caddy for Hughes and and bump up both of their value so that you get multiple decent assets in return for two players that you signed for $1.2 million guaranteed in, <laughs> at the start of free agency in 2021. Afterthought, like the fourth and fifth right-handed defenseman that you signed that day, you know, uh, or at least the third and fifth. So... This one's a no-brainer. The Canucks need to monetize these types of assets. Holding on to them is the sort of thinking that has got this club here. Honestly, I don't even think... like This isn't even going to be one that I yell about because it's so bleeding obvious. Like It's so obvious. There's no doubt about it. There's no other way of framing this that is even reasonable. It's not even a reasonable discussion 
to be like, this team should hold Luke Shen because they need him to teach their young players how to play. It's like, first of all, culture in in the room doesn't come from a third pair defenseman making 850K. I'm sorry. That's not how locker rooms work, right? It's about the guys who make the most. It's about the guys who play the most. It's about the guys who contribute the most. Like, those are the guys who have to hold people accountable within a team environment. You want good people, too, at the bottom end of your roster. But fundamentally, like, Luke Shen can help, but he's not going to set the tone for the locker room. That's ridiculous. That's not how that's not how workplaces wor- operate. If your locker room can't handle losing Luke Shen yeah, you got because bigger problems. a UFA, you have much, much bigger problems. And, and, and keeping Luke Shen won't fix them. So, no, this is a no-brainer. Can't be discussed in reasonable terms. Um, honestly, to pretend that there's like two sides to this argument and both are equally valid is to gaslight this market. This, there's only one reasonable thing f- for this team to do in regards to Luke Shen. Unless, unless, come deadline time, you are no less than third in the Pacific and not... Two points out? Not two points out. Not, not even not two points out. By point percentage. Third point, yeah, by third point, percentage point percentage specifically. Um, by the actual metric that measures team performance in season, not by the one that people pretend does. Lots of texts coming on in on this. No surprise. This one, a little surprised by this reaction. I'll get to some of the less surprising ones, but this one comes in. Drancer, again, you are incorrect. Shen has no value to smart hockey executives. Once he leaves Quinn Hughes, he's out of the league. You don't understand the game. Strong disagree. Go back and look. Go look at some of the veteran defensemen who change hands. For fourth at deadline round season picks. every at year the, at the deadline every year no and and I mean like far worse players right like, not to mention Luke Shen won back to back Stanley Cups with the Tampa Bay Lightning played nineteen playoff games over the course of those two those two runs for them and th- last time I checked a pretty smart hockey team saw some value in having Luke Shen around I mean Jordy Ben netted the Canucks a fourth round pick within the last eighteen months at the trade deadline. I'm sorry, but Luke Shen has more value than that because he's actually right-handed. Because he's more physical. Every team in every pro scouting meeting in the weeks leading up to the deadline that has aspirations of playing an additional two and a half months of hockey thinks, what are we doing for our seventh and eighth defensemen? Are we big enough on the back end? What happens if we get into a series against Tom Wilson? What happens if we get into a series against X giant human being? And then they start looking around for options, and then guys like Luke Shen's value spike. Now, Luke Shen has a built-in advantage. Like, the Canucks got a fourth for Jordy Ben, and they probably would have gotten more, except that Jordy Ben was making $2 million against the cap. Luke Shen's making eight hundred fifty k. Like, Luke Shen's the perfect trade deadline chip for a team to acquire. The perfect one. And a lot of teams would view him as the perfect 6-7. The perfect guy. To stabilize the 6-7, especially because what do a lot of teams have a bunch of? Left-handed puck-moving yes. D, right? Like, you know, say the Winnipeg Jets have an injury and you're looking at, like, okay, who can we put with Ville Husso, right? Say the Leafs are thinking, like, who would be good on our third pair with Rasmus Sandin to stabilize Rasmus Sandin, right? Like, teams around the league are going to start having these conversations, thinking about it. Um, you know, the, the Florida Panthers. Right? Could could Luke Shen look good with Josh Mahura? Right? I, I, on and on down the list. Like every team has the, those types of players and is going to be looking for righties that can help stabilize the ship. No question about it. Luke Shen would have major value. Like third round pick for me, for sure. 
for sure. I'd be surprised by a return less than that, considering yep. his contract status, considering his cap hit, considering his championship pedigree, and considering his well-earned reputation as like a good team guy, a guy who helps you win just by their very presence. Which also, by the way, is why if the Canucks do decide to go down this road, Shen should be involved in the conversations. Managing this relationship should be a priority. Because A, you might want to bid on him again. Well, I, and B, I think I legitimately think he's the type of guy you might want to bring in to uh, to a hockey operations role down the road. So the uh, the, the trade the guy then sign him sign him again in the summer conversation comes up with every pending I know, and, and it and almost such never a happens. It, it almost only, never happens. It only happens with Keith Kachuk. This Luke Shen is a guy where I can actually see it happening. Yeah, I don't now, know. Now, I wouldn't bank on it. That's not the reason you do it. But as you said, at least you maintain the relationship to give yourself I, a shot. That's not the reason you do it, though. You still do it even if you don't think there's any possibility you, that happens. No, but you, it does seem more plausible to me than in a lot of circumstances. I, I, I don't think I don't think that's going to happen in Luke Shen's case. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that you're going to be able to extend him either, right? Like, Luke Shen wanted to come here to show that he could play every day. Uh, he has. He has. But at some point, I think Luke Shen's going to want to win again. Right, like before you hang him up, you know, like he got to be a top four defenseman and everyday player here, which he didn't get to do in Tampa Bay. But I, I suspect at some point he's going to want to win. And you know, uh, look, I, I if you want to have the extension conversation, maybe you have it. But I mean, what, 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 what? Like, unless he's going to take a flat rate, like unless he's looking for zero raise to stay where he is, unless he loves Vancouver that much, like, you know. It's a no-brainer. I'm sorry. Uh, read more reactions. Yeah, no, Let's lots see. of text. I'm sorry. I was just replying to somebody. Let who, me know. Who, let me somebody know. pointed out that it has kind of happened with Shen already and that he was traded. But there was a couple of years in between there where he went off and played with Tampa before he signed back. Yeah, to the totally different so situation. It's, it's a little different. Totally different situation. Um, uh, is, there any, is there any good argument? So, well, there's lots of... Well, we'll see. There's lots of text coming in. Colin from the Caribou says, I'm keeping Shen and dealing Bo, even when our window to win is after Shen retires. Why? One word, leadership. This one comes in, unsigned. Thomas, a hockey team is not a normal workplace. You absolutely need a person like Luke Shen who works his butt off every shift and is a respected voice of the team. I don't disagree with that. You do need people like that. And this is no slight against Luke Shen. He's not the only player in the league who checks that box. There are other players so you, who do that. You don't need people who work hard and are good people in other workplaces? I don't know what workplaces you've been a part of, but like that's I mean, also what you need. We're getting by. We're managing to survive somehow. But anyways. I think we work hard. We don't work hard? I didn't mean you and me, but I'm joking. Anyways, oh. I'm just joking. Okay. But I think I'm thing. a character guy. You can't afford to trade me for a third. We'll, we'll talk about that after the show, Trancer. <laughs> um, but again, yes, he's doing it now. He's providing that leadership. And again, it's not going to be the type of thing that... He's not going to be the leader on the team just because of what his role is and the role that other players have. He's doing it, but again... There are other players around the league. You cannot be so scared of losing leadership from a sub-million dollar defender who realistically should be a bottom-pairing guy, except that he fits very, very well with your number one defenseman. You can't be so scared of losing that that you pass up on the chance to bring in some value at this trade deadline. Again, it's not a slight whatsoever or any disrespect towards Luke Shen. He has been everything and more they could have asked for. Absolutely everything they could have asked for. In this role, you just can't pass on that sort of value. And look, we saw a similar conversation, not quite to the same degree, play out with Tyler Mott last season. I think ultimately they made the right they decision. made the right choice, yeah, and it did. wasn't it wasn't the return that a lot of people thought they might be able to get. 
for Tyler Mott. It was lesser than that, and they still made the right decision. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, we're having this conversation with Brock Besser, and again, we talked about this a little bit with Harmon Dial, of, well, hold on a second. He's at his lowest point of value. Why trade him now? Why do a deal when he is such a distressed asset rather than hold him, try to build him back up, and see what you can get down the road? And look, I, I can understand the logic there, right? The classic thing of, you know, buy low, sell high, try to improve the value of an asset before you move it. Well, guess what? That's what they've done with Luke Shen. They bought low on Luke Shen, signed him to a really, really team-friendly deal. They've played him in major minutes, in a major role, given him an opportunity to shine, put him in a position to succeed alongside Quinn Hughes, let him showcase his abilities and what he can bring to the team. He has, as a result, raised his value. Now's the time to sell. The plan's not going to work. The plan of raising the value of an asset and then sell them is not going to work if as soon as the value spikes, you fall in love with the player and convince yourself that you can't possibly lose them. This is the moment that you want. This is the the time to move on from a player when their value is going to be at their absolute highest. And it just makes me think, you know, I understand it sounds good in theory, right? Hold on to a player until their until their value is highest, but you actually have to follow through. You have to follow through on the next step of the process, which is strike while the iron is hot and trade them. And that's where we are with Luke Shen. And maybe it's not its not saying it's this week, it, but it's going in to the trade deadline season. A pending UFA who checks so many boxes for so many different teams. You've put him in a position to, su- to succeed. Now you have to reap the rewards of that. You can't convince yourself that all the work you've done raising his profile around the league makes him untradeable, makes him untouchable. No, it, quite the opposite. It's why you do the deal, because the value is likely there. So, look... Anyway, this, it's just, honestly, it's its such an open-shut case. It's wild. Like, the Bo Horvat, as you said, the Bo Horvat decision is way more difficult. Way more difficult. The Kuzmenko one, way more difficult. Those are worth debating the merits on both sides, right? Those are worth agonizing over. The other expiring guys, and this includes Kyle Burrows, too. This includes Luke Shen. Uh, is there anyone else? Notable expirings? Kuzmenko. No, but, no, I already said oh, him. Oh, sorry. I wasn't listening. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so then. All, all good. Um, Speaking of bad teammates. <laughs> yeah. Notable expirings, you, 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 you liquidate. You liquidate or you extend, period. This organization can't afford, can't afford to bleed value out in unrestricted free agency given where they are and the size of the challenges ahead if they're going to get back on track. Keith the Water Guy texts in, I changed my mind. Trade Shen and then re-sign him in the offseason. There okay, you go. Tra- well, we've changed your mind. We're, cha- we're changing we've changed your mind to a bit of false hope. Good. Great. You've abandoned one false conception for another. Fantastic. Sports fandom. Uh, Let's go. It's got to be. I it's, love it's a, tra- guy, it's a transitional way. step. It's a stepping yeah, stone. Sure, sure. D- 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 denial's the first step. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby <laughs> steps. I don't, I, I honestly, I, this one, this one baffles me that this is a talking point. Like, are we really there? Like, you've really watched this organization make every possible mistake for the last decade, and you want them to make another? Like, how... Have you not paid attention? I don't understand. Like, I legitimately don't understand, unless you're just putting sort of the concept of, like, the tough leadery guy on this absolutely ridiculous pedestal, and just, you know, sort of praying to this shrine and 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 inflating the impact that one player has as opposed to realizing that like these players are available every year like you can find the next guy 
And you can probably find them for under a million. Jason, with no acquisition cost. Jason in South Van says, The media harped for years about a bloated back end. Now Shen is here for a reasonable cost. And you all want to trade him now? What? Because he's 33 and is a pending UFA. Yeah. If he was 28 and he was on a great deal for four more years, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. No, no, no. If he was 27 and a pending UFA, you'd be like, okay, you got to figure out the cost of maybe keeping him considering that he's done such a good job on Sh- on Hughes's right side and provides all these other details. Right? But also, if he was 28, he'd be four times four million. Yeah. And I'd probably least. be like, eh, that's probably not a good bet unless he comes with Johnny Gaudreau. You know? Uh, Todd the Planner says, The biggest fear this organization should have is Hughes or Pedersen deciding they are tired of being part of a train wreck. Patience means nothing if you gain a draft pick but lose an irreplaceable asset. Luke Shen, again, I want to be very, very clear about this. Calling him an irreplaceable asset is getting way ahead of ourselves here. They lost Chris Tanev. They lost the guy that... Pedersen and Hughes literally still refer to his dad. But now they can't lose Luke Shen. Come on. That's not serious. Somebody else texted in, uh, everyone wants to make changes, but they're scared of actually you also, moving you know the what? players. You also can't make decisions as a hockey club based on what your star players want. You can't just like purely cater to them. You well, ha- you, you have to purely cater to them. You have to manage the relationship. But yeah. you know what they ultimately want? They want to win. They want to win. You set up an agreement with them, a covenant between team and player, that the p- team is going to do everything possible to win. And that doesn't mean that all their friends get to stay. Like, look at Tampa Bay. Look at all of the guys they've had to jettison over the years. Tyler Johnson. You don't think Tyler Johnson has some extraordinarily close relationships in that room? You don't think Ryan McDonough Yanny Gord. is like extremely tight with most of the guys in that room? Yan Gord and Blake Coleman and Barkley Gaudreau. I mean... You have to make tough decisions in the contemporary NHL. The deal that you have with your players is we're going to spend to the cap. If you take less, we're going to use that space well. We're going to do everything possible to put you in a position to play meaningful games. That's what you owe your players. You don't owe them their buddies. You don't pay their friends. If you pay their friends and it doesn't work, you've actually harmed the relationship. Like, what are you talking? you got to win. That's what you owe your players. If this, if this club's ever going to win big, in the timeline it's going to take to reset the decks here, Luke Shen's value to the club is as a draft pick. Period. Period. There's no argument here. Really, really there isn't. I said I wouldn't get mad, but then I got mad about that, like, make the trade so that Pedersen is happy. Like, that's not how... Se- Show him the respect of carrying yourself like a team that knows how to win. Don't, don't... You're not inviting him over on Friday to play Mario Party. Oh, Luke Shen's not coming. I'm not coming either. Come on. That's childish. That's ridiculous. Let's go to break. On that note, we will go to break. Final segment of Canucks Talk coming up. It is Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd. Thomas Drant, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. The text message inbox popping off right now after the Luke Shen conversation in the previous segment. Lee says, time to invite Drantz over to play Mario Party so we can talk about how anything can happen in the playoffs. (laughs) 
I just want to be clear. I love Mario Party. Or not as much as I love Mario Kart. I don't know if anyone knows this, but in the wake of the pandemic, I got outrageously good at Mario Kart 8. So I have recently come out of Mario Kart retirement. To play Mario Kart 8? Yes. Okay. So are we, you are you past the point of using the steering guide? It, do you still use the how could, still honest, use auto steer? Honestly, how how could you ask me that? <laughs> that is a deeply offensive to my soul question, Drancer. Most people use auto steer, man. Yeah. No. Get out of here. Get okay, out of here. With no, that. I'm I'm glad. <laughs> get out of here with I'm that. Pleased. So I'm we might pleased. Have, we might have to do a Mario Kart. Head what to do you use? What what's your get? What's your setup? Uh, Donkey Kong. Yep, me too. I believe this. I actually really relate to Donkey Kong. <laughs> I've come to like really I think that Donkey Kong like has meant has become a like he started to mean a lot to me spiritually and I think it's because he's like a, a wild animal in a tie which is kind of like what I feel like most of the time. Are you constantly trying to find your lost banana hoard as well or I mean we're all trying to find our <laughs> we're lost We're all trying to. The, the the whole point is the bananas we lost along but, the way. But uh Donkey Kong I I'm still you know, experimenting with different carts. I think the sneaker. Oh, the sneaker. The sneaker. Oh, amateur. And uh, what is it? I, I'm experimenting <laughs> with the tires as well. I said I just came out of retirement. I got I to gotta get the rig down. Right, I'm gonna tell but you, Donkey Kong is the winner. I'm going to let you in on a secret. You ready? Yes. Mr. Scooty. Okay. Okay. Mr. Scooty and the, like, red rollerball wheels. The rollers. <laughs> Tom Strat's a wild animal in a tie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you screenshot that for me? I'm posting oh, that on Instagram, please. Thank you. Um, the, <laughs> the fact is, is Mr. Scooty and the roller wheels. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm changing your life. I will try it out. I, I shouldn't tell you this because I should have beat you a few times first before you understood, but that will uh, that will up your game significantly. This text comes in. What is the more significant Drance trigger? Anything can happen or don't trade UFAs because PD might like them. <laughs> It's got to be anything can happen. That's the all-timer. I mean, it's just... You know what? Any... Old bromides that are demonstrably unhelpful all trigger me, right? So it's like, we're two points out of the playoffs. That triggers me because it's factually not true, right? Like, it's the wrong way to look at it. Anything can happen. That's a justification that supports mediocrity, right? Same with Same with the standings thing. Um, this UFA, this UFA depth player, uh, is, is too important. We need culture carriers in the room, so we had to sign this, you know, guy who doesn't move the needle to term for three million a year. Those all are justifications for mediocrity. They're they're like, you know what, you know what they are. They're like these hockey bromide based viewpoints that people find it difficult to argue because they're often made by like Hall of Famers, Hall of Fame players. But no team that's winning in the NHL these days believes that, really. You know what I mean? Like that's that's for the mediocre teams. That's for that's for the teams where they're owned by people who just want to be around celebrities, who just want to feel important, as opposed to actually do the hard work to win. Uh, those are the sorts of views that harm an organization's ability to operate in a contemporary NHL efficiency contest within the hard cap, right? Like this is a complicated league now. Winning is complicated in this league. You need to be very confident in your ability to replace players. You need to be very strategic in setting up and managing your window. You're effectively trying to set up like a durable window of contention and then manage all of your contracts and all of your assets 
to sneak as much talent under the hard cap in years where you really have a chance to win big. And even when you do that, your chances of really winning big suck. Like they're never going to be higher than about 20% if you do everything right. Like it's so hard to win a cup. You have to marshal so many resources toward being the most efficient of 32 teams and then also getting lucky and then also having the right type of team for, for, you know, June and avoiding the big injuries. Um, Like to do what Tampa Bay did and make three straight finals, the amount of things they had to get right over the course of a decade, how stubborn they had to be in their pursuit of those goals, how many times they had to fail, but trust their process and keep sticking with it. Like, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, think about Tampa's last decade. Think about 2011. The Canucks the Canucks make the cup final. The Tampa Bay Lightning are one goal away from making the cup final, right? And then think about everything Tampa Bay got wrong in the decade since and everything the Vancouver Can- or sorry, everything Tampa Bay got right over the ensuing decade and everything the Vancouver Canucks got wrong that set up the disparate results over the last three years, right? You need to be so good. You need to be counting cards. Like You need to be a sharp at the table rather than a whale. And the Canucks might have a whale on their sweater, but they don't have to be a whale at the table. Extending Luke Shen, believing that anything can happen, looking at the standings as opposed to point percentage and evaluating your own team, it's all part of the same card that justifies sucking. What it comes down to me, and you mentioned it, the confidence to replace players, the fear, the fear element. And somebody texted in unsigned. The Shen argument is just the Pearson one from a couple of years ago, not even considering Pearson's contract. How bad does it look now not to have traded him for a second round pick? It looks really bad. And again, I think it was born from a lot of these same factors. One, managing relationships on the team, but also just the idea of, oh boy, how are we going to replace Tanner Pearson? You have to have that confidence that you can go out and replace those types of players. And if you, and if you don't have that, you're always going to back yourselves into these corners where you end up making these long-term mistakes. Uh, lots of texts coming in. Delvere is sending in... Uh, Mario Kart setups for me to try out. Light light blue Yoshi, Mach 8, off-roader slick tires, and the Bowser glider, says Dalvir. So I'll have to try that one out. No, just try Mr. Scooty, man. Dalvir is leading you astray. Go check all the hardcore Mario Karters on YouTube, and they're either in the bug buggy I'm not or gonna on do Mr. That. Scooty. I'm not going to do that. But Why? It's amazing. Take, I'll take your word for it. Dude, I... I okay, I... I I got really into Mario Kart during the <laughs> pandemic. I'm just going to say it. And Ryan in the Black Creek texts in, uh, is Mr. Scooty in the Roller Wheels Drancer's band's name? It would be a good name. It you know would it, be a good band name. That's sick. <laughs> Mr. Scooty in the Roller Wheels. I love it. And all we do is sing about how I'm a wild animal in a tie. That's your lead single. Yeah. Your like... first single, Wild Animal in a Tie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On that note. I'm trying I'm trying to find like a way to work that into like... um. The uh, despite all my rage, right? Like, yes, yes. I just need a I, yeah. I'm yeah. Anyway. Anyways, I get it. I get where you're going with that one. Uh, on that note, it was a light optional practice for the Canucks. Only about six or seven players on the ice today at Rogers Arena. Of course, they play the San Jose Sharks tomorrow. But Bruce Boudreaux still talked to the media afterwards. Here is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux. Well, first of all, I don't remember what I said last night. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, I mean, it's a. Uh, it was a game that, uh, you know, you're happy you end up on the right side of it. And, I mean, a lot of mistakes in both ways, a lot of good things done both ways. So, I mean, it's uh, uh, you look at the stuff uh, on the video this morning and you, you see where you made your mistakes and you try to correct them and 
through video. Doesn't I mean obviously we didn't go on the ice today. Um, so, and uh, between today and tomorrow, we'll correct those things that we didn't do right. You talked about how the group might be starting to believe that they can come back when they get behind, and seems like belief was such a big part of what you accomplished down the stretch last year. How crucial could that be as you try to get on a bit of a run here? Well, I mean, it's 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 uh, just the what I try to promote a little bit, and. Uh, um, you know, believing in one thing is we want we have to start we have to play the right way longer periods of time to get any consistency in that. That's that's for sure. Uh, but uh, the one thing I can tell you is, if you don't believe, you're never going to win. Can, what, what's your thoughts on uh, Sheldon Dries? What he's brought since he's been here? You know what? He's been a good complimentary piece. I mean, he never complains. He takes directions really well. He uh, he works hard. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of good, good things from him, and uh, um, he's anxious to play every night, and uh, he'll do whatever we ask him to do, and and most nights he does it really well. Well, not everything goes right for every player on every night, so when things aren't going so well, he still seems to look like he's putting in a really hard effort. Well, the effort is always there. I'm never worried about the effort with with Sheldon. Um, sometimes it's overwhelming a little bit, like. Um, the consistency that you have to be to be a full-time NHL guy, which he hasn't had uh, the luxury of being yet in his career. But, I mean, I think uh, for most games, I mean, he, he's right there playing, doing a real good job for us. It does seem like he's carved out a role for you, at least at the moment, on this roster. Is he getting closer to being that consistent NHL guy, do you think? Well, I mean, we don't even know what the roster is going to be like tomorrow night. Like, I mean, he might not be playing. So, I mean, it's uh, it's hard to say. But we've got, you know, Joshua is coming back into the into the lineup uh, probably tomorrow. So, I mean, we have to find uh, somewhere for him to play. Seems like Dermot's in good spirits when you know being back on the ice out of that non-contact jersey. How's he doing with uh, getting closer to playing here? Well, I mean, you know. He's getting closer to playing. That's probably why he's got a, a smile on his face. Uh, it hasn't been determined when or what's going to happen to him at this stage yet. But uh, uh, i got to believe every time he's on the ice, he's a step closer to playing. Has Brock looked more engaged in yes. these last two games? I just I, I told him that as well. Um, I just His legs are moving. He's, he's finishing his checks. He's definitely more engaged. Do you... Is it, do you see it as a risk when you do what you did? And of course, you actually didn't do it, but you were going to sit him out on Saturday. But how much of a risk is it? Because probably guys respond in different ways. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, as a coach, you do what you think you have to do to make the team win, right? Then uh, there's uh, if you start worrying about what's going to happen uh, to anybody's feelings, I mean, I think I get along well enough with them that I, we can talk it out but I mean uh, uh, at any any moment it's my job to find what makes people tick and uh, uh, a lot of times it's a lot of different things I mean uh, in the in the old days you used to be able to find guys but I mean it's like taking ice time away from them it's uh, kicking them in the butt or patting them on the you know in the butt uh, there's a lot of things and I got to find out uh Sometimes what what works and what doesn't work. What do you expect from San Jose tomorrow? Well, they play us tough every game. They just came back from a long road trip, and um, I mean, and they didn't get a lot to show for it. So I expect them to come out at home and be a very tough team. I mean, we beat them in overtime last time. I think they'll 
they'll be thinking there that this is the time that we can win a game, and they'll they'll give it their best shot, as will we. A guy like Eric Carlson, that much offense coming from the back end. How do you try to slow down an offensive defenseman like that? I mean, you just put a battle plan together and acknowledge the fact that when he's on the ice that uh, you have to pay a little closer attention. You give, you sort of, everybody will know what his trends are as far as what he likes to do with the puck, when he has the puck, where he has the puck, and analytics show all that stuff. So uh, the players will be well aware. We'll try to get the right guys on the ice against him. And hopefully, I mean, you can't stop all good players all the time. I mean, everybody finds that out. Everybody reads what McDavid's going to do every day, but it's a pretty hard guy to stop. So, I mean, uh, it, you just do what you can to, to make that happen. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreaux after the team had a very, very optional skate at Rogers Arena today. It's his job to motivate people. No ifs, ands, or buts. Buts, yes. <laughs> right? Whatever. <laughs> whether it's, a, whether whether it's, it's a, a pat, a kick, whatever the case may be. It's something. Something happening down there, though, yes. <laughs> watching my, I'm watching my words very, very closely. <laughs> yeah. I mean... You can motivate people through the front door. You can motivate people through the back door. Okay. <laughs> All right. Settle down there, pal. Settle down. Um, uh, some interesting tidbits there. Travis Dermott getting closer to playing. Obviously, we understand that. He's he's back in a full contact jersey yep. at these skates. That's a really good sign. But also, obviously, still some uncertainty. And when he's been out that long with this type of issue, you would expect a, a longer, slower ramp-up process to get him back into the lineup. <laughs> uh, Dom's killing the lower thirds game. For those of you who can't see, they're they're great. Uh, anyway, the Dermot thing. I want to talk about Dermot actually. Let's do it. We Let's talk about Travis. We haven't Dermot. talked much Dermot. No. Well, he hasn't played. I really hope, obviously, that he recovers in full and that when he gets back in the lineup, he is permanently in the lineup. This is a contract year for Travis Dermot. Um, high QO number, uh, arbitration rights. Not an easy, like not a slam dunk QO guy, unless he's playing at a reasonably high level. So the stakes are high for him, but I appreciate that he's taken his time, particularly given you know how we've seen things play out with Tucker Pullman, for example. Yeah, right. Michael Furland. I, all all of the guys we've seen deal with repetitive head trauma. You know, it's better that he's very very cautious in making his comeback. You want to see him get back on the ice. You want to see him stay. On the ice. Correct. Not have it be a blip. You want it to be back on the ice for good. I'd rather he do it right rather than do it fast. Now, in a world where the Canucks are able to have Hughes, Bear, Dermot, Stillman all all, all as part of their defense core. I'm not going to go about suggesting exactly how that fits, but in a world where that becomes your six or four of your your six. That's a lot more puck-moving ability than this team has iced on their back end since... <laughs> uh, like 2011? No, I mean, what? Edler, Stetcher, Tanev, Tanev, Hughes. Hughes, okay. So since 2019-20. Been a while. Been a while. I think that could be really interesting. One thing, One thing, like... I don't know if you noticed this the other game. It was Saturday night. The Canucks start Myers and Stillman, and they both got booed. Canucks fans booed them during the player intros. I think there's something there with both guys. 
You know, like far be it from me to defend Tyler Myers and and Riley Stillman, but I'm pretty sure both of those guys could play a role on a really good team. The problem is I don't think they work together at all. And here's why. I think they're secretly the same guy. Okay? I think Tyler Myers has always been cast as this defensive defenseman because he's such a huge presence, huge imposing physical guy. But really, Tyler Myers is like most dangerous using his size to squeeze on entries Mm -hmm. and turn the puck quickly, right? He's more prone to impacting his team offensively than defensively, in a positive way anyway. His defensive bona fides, hinging mostly on an estimation of his size, completely ignore how high event he is. Stillman is a transitional defenseman who's got some physical upside, who's been cast as a defensive guy. But likewise, Stillman's best attribute is that he's actually really careful and clever about how he moves the puck up ice. He's like very disciplined about making the right plays. And we saw that yesterday when he had a couple of key assists in the Canucks comeback. He actually moves the puck well, but he doesn't have dynamic offensive instincts. So people think of him as a defense, and and he hits hard. He'll throw the occasional big hit. So people think of him as a defensive defenseman. But in fact, he's also a high event defenseman who's more likely to impact the amount of time his team spends attacking than he is to prevent the like scoring chances when he's on the ice. Neither of them are. Once the other team is set up in the offensive zone, they're going to shut it down, guys. And no. those have been the, a lot of the glaring moments we've seen from Stillman have been in that situation. They're both a little chaotic in terms of their in-zone defensive play. Now, Dermott is sort of the other side of this coin. Dermott is a guy who looks like an offensive defenseman, but is actually a guy who helps you defend because he helps you spend time 150 feet away from your net. Um, There's a fit for both guys with Dermott that I far prefer to the fit with each with both Stillman and Myers. Like I think Dermot coming back can really help both Stillman and Myers who to my eyes and obviously in the estimation of the fan base have struggled pretty significantly as a pair together. Stillman Dermot as a third pair, particularly if the Canucks can find a way to move off some money, right? Like if the Canucks can find a way to move off of Myers, right? And you end up with a, a Stillman Dermot third pair. I'm not saying I love it. Especially not for three combined million, right? I'd rather they cost half as much. But I think there could be something there. In my mind's eye, I think there's a world where that twosome, as that duo, as a third pair is, you know, if not money, then like pretty good. Like solidly good. Enough that they can help you control play and win games in that role. And I think back to when Travis Dermott came over last season. I've been waiting to do my Stillman defense for a while. I finally found it. He hasn't been as bad as, you know, he's been turned into the scapegoat. I have not liked his game. I just haven't. That's fine. I don't, to be clear, neither have I. Yeah. But, but this fan base is acting like they, this team would be winning games if not for Riley Stillman. And that's outrageous. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> with Dermot, That's outrageous. I think back to when he came over, and we've talked about the Ethan Bear effect of just having another guy who can skate and handle the puck in the lineup, right? And all of a sudden you see it, and it's like, wow, this team has really been missing that on the blue line outside of Quinn Hughes. Yeah, right? you're, that you're going to make me cry. <laughs> what? Why? Well, it's just like, I like Ethan Bear a lot. Yeah. As a 4-5 guy, 
but the fact that he comes to this team and it's like, oh boy, wow. It's 100% true. It is, but it's also just such an indictment of what came before. And I thought there was not to the same degree because he's not the same player, but even with Travis Dermott. Like, we're only four months removed from people being like, don't believe what people say about this defense core. They're way better than that. And then you get like Ethan Bear acquired in midseason and people are like, oh, wow. It's like, duh! But I liked, ah! what, I liked what Dermot showed it make me cry. towards the end of last season when he came into the lineup. And again, I don't think he's as good as Ethan Bear, but just he, he brings, he brought an element of the ability to make some kind of smart, clever little plays to relieve pressure in his own end that was largely lacking on this blue line. And, you know, you start to stack guys who have that ability, at least at the low end. Obviously, they, they still need to find those guys that have the higher ceiling than Bear and Dermot. But if you're filling out the bottom of your blue line with players of that caliber, right? Sure. As opposed to what we've seen. It doesn't change what this defense ultimately is in the long run, but it at least, it raises the uh, the floor, I think, quite substantially. Oh, I, I mean, it, it's a huge deal. I don't think you can, like, the, the way that you described it there, where you're, like, making marginal improvements, it matters a ton, but, but it matters a lot more when you've got a high-end group, right? Like, when you've got a high-end... Uh, when you're when you're set at the top, the problem that the Canucks have is, is like you've done you've made a marginal improvement to the Oliver Ekman Larson pair, and now it's coming out roughly even or almost even. But it's like you need more than that from a pair of guys who cost you nine million, right? Like there's still the significant big picture issue. Even if I'm liking the work that's being done on the margins, and if this team was a contender, I'd be like, wow, Dermot Bear, that can change things up for this team. This team's issues still go beyond that at the end of the day. That's it for us today. The PDO cast of Dmitry Filipovich is up next. We will be back tomorrow. It is Sportsnet 650.